Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and pastor at Westminster Presbyterian Church. The Town Hall Forum serves the larger community by providing space for voices of conscience to speak about key issues in our society from an ethical perspective. Today's speaker is a major voice on the crisis of civility, which is the theme for this year's Town Hall Forum series. The president of Connecticut College since 1988, Dr. Claire Gaudiani is a consultant to the National Endowment for the Humanities and to numerous foundations, colleges, and universities. She is a member of the Board of Trustees of Public Radio International, Campus Compact, the American Council of Education, and the Council on Foreign Relations. As a college president, Dr. Gaudiani is a national leader in academic affairs who has received widespread recognition for her outspoken views about the need to strengthen and expand our commitment to the civic virtues which define who we wish to become as a people and as individuals. Her speech of May 1, 1993 at the University of Connecticut on developing global civic virtues was published in Vital Speeches of the Day for stimulating discussion about what she called the challenge to birth the civic virtues side of the, civic, of the social contract, the other pole of which is civil rights. Combining in her own person great intellect and passionate belief and conviction. Today's speaker brings to the town hall forum the kind of integrity and integrated thinking for which this world hungers and thirsts. Please welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum the president of Connecticut College, Dr. Claire Gaudiani on the topic, In Pursuit of a Civil Society. Thank you all. Thank you, Reverend Stewart. I am deeply honored to be with you today to share some thoughts in pursuit of civil society. And it is fitting that this series on building civil society should begin here in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Because in fact, if cities like Boston and Philadelphia are the cradle of democracy, Cities like Minneapolis, St. Paul are in fact the cradle of contemporary civil society. Several years ago, I was on an airplane coming back from Japan and I sat down in my seat and I began to put on those wonderful little socks they give you and the eye shades that will permit you to sleep on a long journey and I was settling down to sleep so that I could be ready for a day's work when I returned to my campus. And the gentleman sitting next to me said in broken English much better than my non-existing Japanese, may I ask one question? And I said, of course. And he said, 
What holds you together as a people in the United States? I didn't want to be rude, so I didn't bend over and take off the little socks to put back on my boots. But I was tempted to, because it seemed like it would be a long, sleepless night. But in fact, as I thought for a moment about my own community at Connecticut College, with men and women, faculty and students from all races and backgrounds coming from all over the world, and I thought of my town in New London, which is one-third African-American, one-third Hispanic, and one-third white, I thought to myself suddenly, the answer won't be that complicated. What holds us all together, what makes a moral consensus and creates social cohesion, I thought, in not exactly those terms, given the hour of night, is a set of documents that we share, that express a set of beliefs that we hold, and we hold them so dear that our history is full of our brothers and sisters who were willing to die, to suffer, to take risks, to make sacrifices, to lose loved ones, to assure that these very documents would continue to describe a striving and developing democracy. I tried to explain this to him in several hours, and we had a good talk. But it was a moment in which I began to think that perhaps more of us as Americans really need to take hold of what it is we own together. And maybe some of the sense of being lost and being depressed and being fragmented from each other and isolated, maybe some of the sense of contemporary victimization and downright incivility could be attended to in some important way if we would step back for a moment and reflect on who we are in the world and who we are in our country and who we are to each other in terms of these documents and see our future as leaders in this global society from the perspective of our responsibility to carry forth into our own society and into global society the fullness of the words of our Constitution and Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights and, my dear friends, the Federalist Papers, wherein is the most extensive discussion of civic virtue, not only civil rights. We, after all, in this country, do believe in individual rights and the common good. As civil society, we carry forward our beliefs into daily life so that people experience them in a real way in our society. Well, what is civil society? Well, the first thing is what it's not. It's not simply polite society. It's not simply people who don't speak to each other like, like the panel at the McLaughlin group, for instance. In fact, civil society 
is the collection of clubs and organizations, educational institutions, businesses, corporations, churches and temples, and newspapers and other media, the ways in which citizens carry forth their personal and their public lives together in connected and nested structures. That's civil society. And in fact, it is as citizens in civil society that we assure the continuing work on bringing forth the truth in the documents that began this country. It's true that we cherish rights and we cherish our Bill of Rights, but just as importantly, we cherish the Constitution, which defines our common good, not just our individual rights, but the common good and the social cohesion. The Constitution defines the common good as a more perfect union, justice, domestic tranquility, common defense, the general welfare, the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Interestingly, the very first words of the Constitution and the very last words of the Declaration of Independence also define our shared values as citizens. The Constitution begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The Declaration of Independence concludes, we mutually pledge our lives, our fortune, and our sacred honor. As members of civil society in a democracy, we understand or we need to remember that we need to understand that our rights are based on our willingness to practice civic virtue. The social contract has two pillars, rights and virtues. My right to free speech is dependent, when I'm a minority of one, on your willingness to practice the civic virtue of tolerance. My right to have an opportunity for general welfare and the blessings of prosperity when I'm in a difficult situation in my life is dependent on your willingness to practice charity, or as we say in modern parlance, philanthropy. And if we don't practice civic virtues, we cannot be guarantors of each other's rights. Those are the relationships that connect us in civil society, rights and virtues. How can it be that right now, with all of this history and all of this strength behind us, that our country seems lost? Just when we have experienced the end of the Cold War and all over the world, my dear friends, people are singing our song. What did they sing in Tiananmen Square? What did they sing in Berlin as the wall was coming down? What did the young people who stood in front of the White House in Moscow sing as they faced tanks from their own government? 
And what did women sing in Beijing just last week? They sang our song. They sang, We Shall Overcome. The end of the Cold War is calling us to a level of leadership not from military might, and frankly, although it breaks our hearts, not just from economic might. We're being called to be leaders from our documents. But we seem to feel like we're losing our leadership position in the United States. And just when we can truly celebrate enormous progress in the last 40 years in civil rights in our own country, we feel fragmented and divided by what the proliferation of those rights and the proliferation of other laws has done to our society. Just when the fullness of what Francis Fukuyama calls rationalizing modernism, the post-enlightenment modern thinking that organizes contemporary structures in efficiency-optimizing, strategic, management-clear frameworks, just when all of this is creating the best quality of life for the highest percentage of the most diverse, best educated population in the history of the world, we feel badly about ourselves. What's happening? Well, the truth is we've been through a lot and rationalizing modernism with all its power to make us more efficient and use resources better, the progress of civil rights with all the opportunities that have now been open to women and people of color and handicapped, to people who were different, who didn't have the opportunities they have now just 30 or 40 years ago, just when all this is happening, we realize that we are losing moral consensus and social cohesion in this great nation. Well, it's true. We have lost our ethical compass. People look back to Watergate and say that was the beginning. Well, you can find the beginning you want. And you can look as recently as to what happened in Orange County when a set of citizens with the financial well-being to meet their debt obligations decided together to default as a county on their legally incurred debt. And other citizens, I didn't say anything, I don't know whether any of you did, the rest of us just read about it in the newspaper. We didn't rise to say that if citizens decide that they will default on their debt then what does that do to trust in our society? The other day on the radio, as I was driving to the college, I heard an advertisement for an 800 number that you could call and get a counselor who would talk to you and then send you a package so that you could successfully bring yourself through bankruptcy as a way to deal with that nasty debt that you'd piled up. Terrific. Now we're using the system against the system. 
You can look at what's happened to leaders, whether it's ball players who say they're not models, or priests and evangelists, or politicians, or doctors, or college presidents. Leaders have been failing our people. So yes, we're experiencing at a deep level that doesn't seem rational to us, but we are experiencing and suffering from anyway a sense of the loss of ethical coherence. What do we believe in? Can we trust each other? Secondly, the proliferation of laws and rules and regulations and government intrusions into our lives has given us a sense of a reduction of social responsibility. Now, many of these rules and regulations were very important to bringing forth the society we're part of. But some of them are probably questionable. When the couple in Illinois left their children alone and went on vacation, they were appropriately reprimanded. And within 24 hours, there were three bills in the legislature in three different states making it illegal to go on vacation and leave your children alone. Do we need legislation to tell us these things, or do we need a moral consensus that affirms itself in the way citizens treat each other and rise to speak about abuses? Even more recently, some of you may remember the ad, quite inappropriate, I think, ad that Calvin Klein put out in which young people were displayed in, frankly, probably inappropriate ways. And there was quite a brouhaha in the press. And Calvin Klein took a full-page ad in the New York Times and apologized, said they had not intended the message that was being conveyed, and promised that the ads were pulled and would never come forward again. The following day, the New York Times had a small article on page 17 that said the Justice Department was going to look in to the possibility of law-breaking by Calvin Klein because of this um, ad that they had put out. When, in fact, we didn't need the government to intervene there. Citizens acting as responsible members of civil society had stepped forward to address the issue. So it's quite true that in the last 30 years, we have gone law-crazy. And of course, we, there's already the, an effort to correct this underway in our country. The Democrats are reinventing government, the Republicans are renewing America, and corporations are re-engineering and restructuring, and uh, we're all about uh, containing some of the bureaucratic superstructure that came along with important legislation in the last 30 years. But a third area that I think we've suffered from, uh, while it brought forth much good, is social change. When you think about the numbers of opportunities granted to diverse people over the last 30 years, including changes in opportunities for women, this change is nothing short of revolutionary. It has been a quiet and peaceful, for the most part, revolution but it has caused great pain and social dislocation and questions. And so with new people at the table, it's true that we have an opportunity for the first time now 
to make a truly inclusive democratic society, but we have suffered to bring about the readiness for this moment. We are now ready to pioneer this first real democratic civil society because now we have a society that is committed to assuring that both the children of sharecroppers and the children of shareholders will have opportunities to study in institutions of higher education, both public and private. That is not happening in all countries in the world. It is happening here because of our commitment to those documents where it says all men are created equal. And if that's the case, then here's the kind of education our young people ought to have access to. We have an opportunity now because of all we've suffered. And so it's very important. In fact, I don't think there's a more important piece of work going on anywhere than that we recognize the moment and prepare ourselves to vigorously engage in rebuilding the civil society in its personal dimension as well as in its modern rationalizing, systematizing dimension. What we need to do is to rethink the traditional structures that have held human beings in relationships with each other through millennia. In a wonderful book that I hope many of you will read called Trust, the Social Virtues and Economic Prosperity, Francis Fukuyama lays out a dynamic. He talks about modernism, the organizational structuring of modern life, and then the traditional structures which we used to use before the Enlightenment to organize our interactions as people. Instead of industrial settings in those years, we had guilds that brought craftsmen through trusting relationships with each other from apprentice to journeyman to master. The modern factory is a very different place with very different kinds of relationships developed among and between people. Now what we need to do is to remember that the time people spent in those olden days, time they spent with each other in intergenerational settings, time that they spent with each other assuring the well-being of their community was not a waste of time. And we need to recognize that the future will belong to societies that can integrate pre-modern social organizational frameworks and rationalizing modernism. We certainly know that human beings cannot live only by the modern. Part of what's happening in contemporary society, if you look at the uh, activities of fundamentalism, is that people are stepping away from modern life and stepping into small groups where they can in fact feel again the close human faithful relationships that make individual human beings feel connected to each other. We need connections and comfort. We need to share trust 
and experience faithful relationships in the communities and clubs and organizations we are a part of. We need this just as much, says Fukuyama, as efficiency in modern society. When I read his book, I was reminded of a study done in 1970 of uh, monkeys. And they took newborn monkeys who'd never seen their mothers, and they put them in a cage with two surrogate mothers. One was a wire cross with a source of milk positioned on it. So the monkey would have to climb on it and hold on for dear life, but he could get milk. And the other monkey in the same cage, um, the other mother surrogate, was a soft, furry sling of a mother. And the baby monkey could just climb into the little sling and feel comforted. And you know what happened? The baby monkeys only spent time with the surrogate mother who was the furry sling mother. So much so that they stayed in the little sling and prepared to starve. They weren't making a decision based on their physical well-being in terms of nourishment of the body. What they were doing was making a decision based on another kind of nourishment. We have an opportunity now within our democracy and where our democracy has evolved to in the last 30 years to take our progress and now go back and restructure civil societies in the most heterogeneous culture that is a democracy. The high trust cultures that Fukuyama speaks about in both Germany and Japan are homogeneous cultures. We are a heterogeneous society and our challenge is to build civil society using the diversity among us as a rich resource. And this will take different kinds of thinking, more generosity, willingness to work with people, not simply for them or on their behalf. We have to be people who understand the relationship between the modern and the pre-modern. We need to do this not only because our democracy is in jeopardy from flying apart into fragmented groups, as Jean Bethke Elstein proposes in a wonderful book called Democracy on Trial. But we must also do this because our very economic well-being is dependent on the strength of our civil society. Robert Putnam, in another excellent book called Making Democracy Work, did a study of Italy over hundreds and hundreds of years. And what he discovered surprised even himself. He discovered that it was not the wealthy provinces that developed strong civil societies, organizations of citizens working on behalf of the common good and economic prosperity. It was not the wealthy societies that developed civil society. It was the provinces that developed strong civil society that became economically prosperous. So that in fact, perhaps what our research colleagues are telling us is that the future of our economic prosperity 
as well as the future of democracy, depends on our ability to rebuild the civil society that some people will tell you once existed in this country. And it did in small, homogeneous pockets, perhaps even in Lake Wobegon. But in fact, nowhere has there been the development of a strong civil society in a strong, heterogeneous population. This, my dear friends, is our work. And I would tell you that Americans are fit for this work. We, all of us, come from people who arrived here by dint of great sacrifice and pain. They put their children in the bellies of ships, whether voluntarily as pilgrims or involuntarily as slaves. And they came here and made this country. And others put their children in the bellies of covered wagons and set off across this country and encountered families who themselves, Native Americans, would suffer in terrible conflicts to transform the land, both for good and for ill. We are people who know how to be pioneers. The problem for us in the 1990s is we don't understand our task. Because you see, it's not geographical space that we need to settle now. It is, in fact, social and moral and psychological and spiritual space. And we can't see it, but we know we're lost. Well, our colleagues who have been about doing this research for us can show us what we need to do. We need to rebuild trust. We need to settle the psychological and social and moral and spiritual space of this country with all the people at the table. What a glorious task. We can do that with all we have at our command on the material level, with all the education and the health, with our documents to guide us, which we hold together, whether we came here 400 years ago or 300 years ago, or like my grandfather from Italy 100 years ago. We can do this because of what we believe together. But we must get about the task. I think we need to do five specific things. I think we need to build trust by spending more time with each other. Bob Putnam wrote a wonderful article called Bowling Alone, in which he lays out the fact that years and years ago, people would go bowling in leagues, and they would show up and well, you had to wait your turn. So while you were waiting your turn, you talked. And you talked to people about their lives and their children, and you watched their kids grow up. And you won or you lost, but mainly you were with people. Now when people go bowling, it's a sport. And they're building their bodies. And they bowl alone, thank you very much. And they do it as efficiently as possible, and they're on their way. 
We need to bowl together, and we need to think about ways to bowl together. We need to have conversations in our communities, including our diverse communities, about democracy. We need to have those conversations in church basements and in sixth grade classrooms and in the halls where the Chamber of Commerce meet. We need to ask our institutions of higher education to fashion themselves into models of civil society because, in fact, academic life naturally mines a millennia-old tradition. Just look at the academic robes we wear and academic processions to look at people who live someplace else in time. In fact, we are also very much a part of the contemporary world and very con much contributors to it. We should be called first to be local models of the synergy that needs to be made in our society between the pre-modern and the modern in the context of an inclusive, democratic civil society. Finally, I think four and five won't surprise you. I would ask that we begin to publicize on the news not just happy stories or good stories, but stories of citizens moving together and making common cause. In New London, we have a, a New London Community Center, and that center is at the Shiloh Baptist Church. And the Hispanic community and the Jewish community and the African-American community and the Irish and the Italian communities worked with the college and uh, other local organizations to make that community center strong and it was at Shiloh. We didn't say if it's at Shiloh, it's yours. If it's on government city land, then it's ours. We worked with each other. We need to publicize those stories so that we understand what we mean by civil society working in an inclusive democratic environment. And finally, I would ask the media as well to bring us stories from third world settings where people are in fact taking our documents and imagining what we're doing. And you know what they're doing? They're recreating New England towns. They're doing the equivalent of barn raisings with each other. They're making democracy from the grassroots up. I would conclude by telling you that this is, in fact, America's shining moment. If we can look up and see the dazzle and accept the work that is not different from the work that other generations have done before us. We are, in fact, both pilgrims and pioneers and settlers. It is our work to pursue a truly inclusive, democratic civil society where both material well-being and the human spirit of all God's children will truly thrive. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Gaudiani.
You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church of downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is Dr. Claire Gaudiani, who has just spoken on the subject in pursuit of a civil society. Dr. Gaudiani is president of Connecticut College. While the ushers collect the questions from those here in the audience, those of you on the radio listening audience may call in a question by dialing 332-3421. 332-3421. Dr. Gaudiani, you speak of the challenge to, uh, to integrate the modern and the pre-modern or traditional. You are the president of a college with about 3,000 people. Um, how have you been able to make that synergy work at Connecticut College? Reverend Stewart, probably the easiest way for me to tell you that is to tell you about the last week. We began the school year this year at convocation and took the opportunity to confirm the moral consensus of our student body and faculty and staff around the issues of equality and integrity and social justice. And what we did was we conferred an honorary doctorate to Dr. Robert Coles and to the woman who was the little girl who walked up the stairs by herself into France school and surrounded by federal marshals integrated that school in New Orleans. Mrs. Bridges is a very impressive person. She was followed by a gospel choir who reminded us of our important roots in the civil rights movement. That moment was a moment of moral consensus and social coherence for the whole campus. A couple of uh, days later, we were informed that the rationalizing, systematizing, strategic planning, resource optimizing side of the college had uh, just succeeded in placing us on the top 25 list in the U.S. News and World Report, and we had an all-campus gathering to celebrate both modernism and pre-modern social coherence. Someone asks you to speak to the problem that arises when we shall overcome threatens and fragments society. How does a civil rev resolution of disparate interests occur? We need to keep coming back to the central documents and be patient with each other. When colleges and universities first began to invite larger numbers, for instance, of African-American students and other students of color to campus, there was a tendency for them to fragment and to factionalize. But actually what they were doing was finding common ground with each other because they didn't trust. And so we needed to make sure that they could trust the rest of the community. And now, on a, my own campus, for instance, there isn't any separation. There's only integration. And in social settings, we have to expect that this kind of social change will have a tendency to pull people back into groups. But citizens with strong moral convictions won't be put off by that or made angry. They'll keep coming faithfully back to reassure those who feel threatened that this is a change meant to be because of the documents that hold us together as Americans. 
Someone says the authors of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Federalist Papers shared a common sense of civil society and moral order. Many say today that such a shared common sense does not exist in our multicultural society. Why do you believe that the texts of the 17th and 18th century social thought will work for us today? I guess the most pragmatic answer is to say that I listen to the news and I spend time in foreign countries and I know that around the world people want the kind of freedoms that are described in those 17th century texts. They also understand in many areas that it's going to take some specific actions by them as citizens in order to gain those freedoms. I say this because there are few places in the world where in fact the drive to both democratic ideals and some form of market capitalism is not in the forefront of the thinking of people. How do you propose halting the pell-mell rush to absolute individual rights while abandoning the corresponding responsibilities? And how does the formation of a civil society become a mission of public education? Well, in fact, probably the most pernicious problem that we face in building, and I don't say rebuilding, because I don't think there was any good old days when we had a real civil society with everybody at the table. The most pernicious problem we face in building civil society is the materialism that captivates our people. And that tends to force us into self-gratifying modes and pulls us uh, into an isolation the kind of opportunities to work together that organizations and companies and academic settings offer people can keep pulling people out. I think leaders need to speak more about the kind of generous, heroic behavior that is going to be expected of all of us in civil society. Who is speaking to us this way in our society now? I lament the fact, and I'm embarrassed about the fact, that there are very few academic leaders who stand to call our country to a higher level of social cohesion and moral coherence. But I would say to you that it's difficult to hold individual citizens who are under economic pressure to task for not being more generous when, in fact, Leadership has the responsibility to set examples. One person asks, who is given the privilege and the responsibility of defining civil for this society? Civil society is defined by the virtues that the citizens are willing to practice. That's something to think about. That is, if you want your civil society to include freedom of speech, as I mentioned, you'll have to be and I'll have to be willing to be tolerant. If you want it to include um, the opportunities to borrow uh, money, to invest and build a life, you're going to have to be willing to be honest in repaying debt. If you want protection when your life is in jeopardy or you have high needs you can't meet, 
then you're going to have to be willing to practice the civic virtue of charity. So that in fact, there are places in the world where there are civil societies and they are defined by the willingness of people to practice a certain number of behaviors that guarantee the benefits that they wish to have be a part of their civil society. What we have in this country are a set of documents that call us beyond some quixotic set of preferences that we have as individuals or even as cities and towns. We have laid out before us a set of rights and opportunities described in, the, in our founding documents. And so unless we want to change those documents, what we need to do is go through and identify for each other and ourselves the kind of behaviors, and that's the doing, as well as the kind of civic virtues, and that's the being, that will be necessary to sustain a democratic civil society as defined in our Constitution and Declaration of Independence. One person asks you to expand on your comments about common American culture and multiculturalism. Uh, how do you have one society that is multicultural and that has a shared set of common virtues? Well, in fact, um, we probably have a better chance to make a rich uh, and functioning society because of our diversity. The kind of imagination, the ability to see things from many different points of view, high levels of creativity, uh, varying levels of both energy and thoughtful reflection are in some sense in our society a result of the fact that we don't all come from the same DNA. And in fact, biologically, the only reason all of us are still here and that there's life on the planet is because of biodiversity. So that in fact the perpetuation of life forms at all is based on the fact that there will be transformations uh, of DNA, uh, of genetic material that will be changing with its environment and optimizing its opportunities. What we have the opportunity to do now in our country is admit that we need to work to make multiculturalism an asset because it's true that we feel fragmented by it. But as many of us look at what the African-American culture has brought to this country, we can only be profoundly grateful. As we look at what Anglo-Saxon culture has brought, we can be profoundly grateful and so on across a great variety of cultures. And with each one, there are also weaknesses. But together, we can make up for each other's weaknesses. And if this sounds idealistic, I want to take a moment to apologize right now. But then I want to ask Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and a whole set of other people to apologize with me for idealism. Thank you. One person would, in the audience would like to challenge um, the relationship between uh, economic prosperity and the civil society. 
and asks, hasn't economic prosperity been the engine to power our civil society? And with the American dream fading for so many, is not this the source of the breakdown of a civil society? That's a, that's a question with a, a very long and complicated answer. In fact, um, American prosperity is very much linked to uh, civil society and always has been. What has occurred in the last uh, 50 years, in fact, even in the workplace, is that in, a, in an effort to get increasingly high levels of efficiency out of workers, just for instance, work became more and more depersonalized. People had less and less of a stake in the work and the workplace. And union contracts grew to be the size of the Manhattan phone book. Those are pieces of evidence of a breakdown in civil society in a company, a breakdown in trust. What we're really seeing as we watch a kind of a weakening in some areas in our own economy is the fact that civil societies and the values of trust and faithful relationships have been more and more attenuated and weakened as the economy has become more complex. That's what, for instance, would even give someone the idea that they could decide to default on a debt and be proud of it. That's the sign of a breakdown. And so we, we've got to go back and reconfirm our commitment to the connection between a civil society that isn't dependent on rules to do the right thing, whether someone is a manager or an owner or a worker, but rather there is a moral consensus on how we're going to be. We're going to be honest. We're going to be compassionate. We're going to be just. You can't legislate that. You can only encourage it. And it has been weakened through the last 50 years. And it must be strengthened now. And our economic prosperity uh, relies on that. How can we maintain civility in an increasingly stressful workplace where people are shooting each other? Take, for example, postal employees. We are facing levels of, of violence in this society that is nothing short of astonishing. I see that very much as part of, of this um, situation I was talking about, where people are pulling into units that they can control and feel um, comfort in. And they take their guns with them, some of them. And when the law doesn't seem to be working for them, they take their guns out on the street because they don't feel the system is working for them. They don't feel a faithful relationship with others and with the society they're a part of. These are symptoms of the breakdown in civil society. None of this will be fixed quickly, just like our country wasn't settled quickly, geographically. It will take great amounts of time, and it will take a re-cementing of relationships that may for a while in fact mean that instead of a major downsizing, a company may ask that everyone take no raise this year so that we can sustain jobs and in fact grow more strength from within by starting entrepreneurial activities. And some companies are doing this because they understand that once they affect major layoffs, 
they break the trust in those who remain, who then begin to cycle into small groups and feel alienated. And for some, they just do a less good day's work. And for others, they become so alienated that they commit an act of violence. Dr. Gradiani, because the forum concerns conscience and ethical perspective, one last question. Would you share with us something of what in your own personal development has led you to the place where you are now and to address these issues? Yes, I am uh, the oldest of six children uh, in a strong Roman Catholic family and I continue to practice my faith and I'm a Eucharistic minister and can give the Eucharist to my students. I believe that spiritual values for me have helped me to be more effective in my life. I never preach to students about being religious, but I try to call out of them uh, a consideration, an exploration of the importance of the human spirit. I come from a family, though, uh, which has been doing this uh, for generations. When my grandfather arrived here as a boy of nine and wanted to be a doctor, and he pursued that dream, although his parents weren't even in this country. And he became a doctor and was the first Italian-American to graduate first in his class in 1906 at Columbia P&S. And he served in the First World War, and his young Italian wife from the town he came from, whom he married the year he went back to see his mother for the first time in 20 years, had herself made a captain's coat, just like his, for her tiny size six frame. And she sold war bonds for her country, very different from the place she was born, but a place that she and her husband believed in and they sent their children to college, and they knew that they were called to make a difference. He could have taken an internship and residency anywhere in the country because of his academic status, but he chose to return to Harlem and work with immigrants and the poor because he knew he could speak their language, not just Italian, but the language of need and poverty, which he had known. The stories we were told about my grandparents when we were young helped my brothers and sisters and I to understand what we should be called to do both out of our Italian culture, the pre-modern side, and out of our uh, modern culture, the blessings of this country. Dr. Gaudiani, we thank you for being here today and for sharing with us and for calling us into this new space with boldness and with courage and with trust in one another and in the larger powers around us and within us. And we wish you well at Connecticut College and in your journeying around the country to challenge all of us. And we thank all of you for being with us today at the Town Hall Forum. <laughs>